Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. If you wouldn't mind just grabbing a seat at the back there, that would be really helpful. Uh, my name is Jonathan Porritt. I am your chair for this evening. I'm founder director of an organization called Forum for the Future. Uh, I've recently ceased to be the chair of the Sustainable Development Commission here in the UK in July, hence my feeling of liberation from being freed from that particular advisory role. Um, I've been involved in issues around sustainability and urbanism for a very long time. So when I was invited to chair this Urban Age lecture this evening, I was absolutely delighted to hear from two astonishingly inspirational voices in this world of ours, both of whose work I've been familiar with for a long time. So to meet them in person tonight is a great privilege for me, and I know we're going to have a very lively uh, exchange after they've both um, spoken. So I'm not going to say anything more. We're going to crack on. <laughs> you can see who they are up here. I don't need to read it out to you because you're all doing that stuff for yourself. But really delighted, Saskia and Richard, that you could be here this evening for this Urban Age lecture. And Saskia, you're going first. All right. Richard, what's the next? I think Saskia's using this. Well, it's a great pleasure and it's a challenge. The subject is a real challenge. I think of it as an experimental subject, at least for me. I don't know enough, either about cities or about, let's say, the natural situation. So it really is what I want to do with you is to think aloud about what I think are some of the issues. Now I am, yes. Um, what I really want to arrive at is the notion that to address the environmental challenge, let's say, from the perspective of the city, it is not enough and I'm not saying that any of you thought it was enough, to think in terms of remediation, of just simply recycling a bit more rather than a bit less. That what I want to argue is that what we need to recover are two very complex parallel systems. And one way of thinking about them, oh, that's a good beginning. Phones are off, I think, right? Um, so our, the, the, the variety of ecologies that cities, contain and that nature contain. And the challenge is not the lowest common denominator, how do we make them talk to each other. The challenge is actually to utilize that multiplicity of different ecologies. So I'm thinking about cities as complex systems and of nature as complex systems. And the notion is can we build bridges between these two parallel, multi-layered, etc., systems. Before getting into that, I do think that we need to situate the city in sort of a larger frame, which is the frame of the languages often global governance challenges. And my perspective is that a lot of what we call, what, for which we use this language of global governance challenges, actually becomes concrete, messy, operationable, actionable, etc., in cities. Now, the level of the city is not comfortably housed in this dominant discourse of global governance challenges. But I think that is part of the task. And we know from multiple instances that cities long before Kyoto had to act on their environmental situations. My image is always that national governments can talk, 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 
and the leadership of cities, whether that is civic, neighborhood, political, etc., can talk less and needs to act. So the city in that sense is a very interesting space. I have a few initial slides, and one way of framing this issue is that there is a kind of urban footprint to a whole variety of these global governance challenges. And the second point here, cities have had to develop capabilities to deal with them. Even a city which is not so particularly enlightened as Los Angeles uh, in the 1980s and even sooner, earlier perhaps, had to deal with its, its air quality. So did Tokyo. They had to deal. And we know, for instance, in the US, there's a very interesting record of all kinds of municipal governments acting against national government, suing. Now, this is the United States, which is a certain kind of country. Certainly under Bush, it was a certain kind of country. And so they sued the Environmental Protection Agency for having standards that were too low. They asked from the Environmental Protection uh, uh, Agency to strengthen the tools that cities and regions had in order to act on bad emissions, etc. And actually, the national government said, no, no, everything is fine. CO2 is fine. So, you know, I, and that, by the way, is not an exaggeration. It may be the U.S. might be an exaggeration, but what I'm describing you actually was really the case under Bush. Now, that is perhaps an extreme situation, what I'm describing, though it is real, it happened. But you can see that, you know, you can multiply if you want the examples. Now, another major issue, and this is a subject that I'm working on, is the fact that insofar as, the, as war is increasingly a symmetric war, war becomes urbanized. And war, actually, is enormously polluting of cities. So one of the, 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 the issues that I'm very interested in is in recovering the toxicity of war on water, on ground, the temporalities. We're now beginning to have quite a bit of data that shows that there's often a very long temporal frame in terms of capturing these effects. Uh, and so just on, on this larger notion of the city as part of a global governance space, you know, the second point here, that under conditions of asymmetric war, conventional army encounters unconventional combatant, which leads to an urbanizing of armed <coughs> conflict, this pursuit of national security actually becomes the making of urban insecurity, you know, which puts the traditional paradigm a bit on its head. Um, so what might be good to protect the national is not so good to protect the urban. There are a whole range of other challenges that have a distinctly urban footprint. Questions, the new racisms, the old racisms, anti-immigration issues, etc., etc. A lot of this is not exclusively urban, but in the city it takes on a very, very sort of specific uh, sense. Now, here, now I begin to enter into the subject that I want to, to get at. And one issue is a diversity of temporal frames. There is a way, when you look at the empirics, a certain process at the level of the city has a different temporal frame within which, including a lot of the environmental processes, including environmental damage processes, than what it might have at the national level. Now, out of that can come urgency of action, et cetera, et cetera. An interesting question in this domain, if you want, is whether the city 
can actually also absorb, besides making everything more urgent and immediate, can the city also absorb the longer temporalities that we need if we're going to, for instance, engage in ecological economics, which takes a much longer time frame in order to demonstrate that something is good, something is valuable, etc. We don't have the answers for a lot of that, but it is, I think, a very interesting question to, to, to ask. Now, coming to my bridging ecologies, and one framing here is how do we use complexity? Now, a lot of people are talking about complexity, there is a lot of knowledge out there, etc. I'm just beginning to work on this and I'm, I'm using it again to, uh, to get at these two parallel, if you want, complex systems, the city and nature. Um, now, one thesis, one proposition, one call to action, etc., is that the complex systemic and multi-scalar capabilities of cities are a massive potential for a broad range of positive articulations with nature's complex uh, uh, ecologies. And so here this image of bridging the ecologies of cities and of nature. Cities are a type of socio-ecological system that has an expanding range of articulations with nature's ecologies. Today, this is the critical point, most of these articulations produce environmental damage. The articulations are there, however. And so one question is, can we begin to alter the negative impacts of these articulations? Uh, and again, I think this is experimental, this takes work, this takes biological research, this takes all kinds of things. So it's sort of a, kind, a way of mapping the issue that takes it beyond sort of remediation and more recycling. You know, the, all of that is very, very important. Um, very quickly, a lot has been said about this. Cities are absolutely part at the center, I would say, of our environmental future. Urbanization, we, a lot has been said about this, etc. Perhaps one way of marking it here, the second point, it is really through cities and vast urban agglomerations, it could be urban regions, of course, that humankind, we, <laughs> are increasingly present in the planet. That is our most shared mediation, not everybody. And so we, I think, have got to deal with it also as a set of bridges rather than just, you know, whatever the city and we need to clean it up. Um, now, the other thing is that cities actually are creating new social natural conditions. And I think here, David Harvey's work, a book that he did on the environment, I think it's about 10 years old, where he theorized uh, the environment and nature. Nature, once we are in it, once we construct the category, is one of the most sophisticated analyses. I don't know if people are familiar. It's one of his books that did not travel a lot. But I have used it in the past, and I'm sort of returning to it now. So this notion that, that city, it's not city versus nature. We create our own <coughs> natural systems. Actually, I'll develop that just a bit. Uh, now, this is not necessarily what Harvey was saying exactly, so I'm taking off. I'm just saying that that, that book sort of made me think about the city in a different way. Um, so, so the second point here, that it, the city is creating new environmental conditions. We're all familiar with them, heat islands, ozone holes, desertification, water pollution, etc. 
two aspects of cities that matter in this project of bridging the ecologies of cities and of, of nature. One is that the city is multiscalar, so is nature. And multiscalar here, I, I'm sure there are enough geographers in the room to, to know that it's not just simply a question of micro or macro. It is that condition A at scale one becomes a different condition at scale two, and again a different condition at scale three. It is not simply a question of more of the same. Macro is more and the micro is less. Because I do think that nature is profoundly marked by a capacity to do that kind of processing, where what is very bad at one level, this animal eating up that other one, actually becomes something good at another level, positive, etc. Uh, the famous case of the butterflies, we all know that, at this level, it is just a little butterfly, and at some higher stratospheric, it creates enormous movements of wind. So, so this question of, of understanding nature as multiscalar and the city as multiscalar. Now, for me, I've done enough work on the city from this perspective of the city being multiscalar. In other words, it's not just the local versus the global. It's that the global, for instance, is partly constituted inside the city. So I am very comfortable with this. I don't know if that's the case for, for, for everybody. Um, so I'm not going to develop it too much. Um, now, nor do I have time. I know, where are you, Jonathan? Yes, I know. Um, now, the other thing is the ecologies of cities. The fact when we begin to think about cities as containing multiple ecologies. Some are ecologies of nature, Others are man-made ecologies, which have little to do with nature, except maybe that they produce damage, etc., etc. Um, now, the city is also multiscalar in the geography of the environmental damages that it produces. You know, the, the ecological footprint is one instance of that. Um, uh, some of it is atmospheric, the damage that we do. Some of it is internal to the built environment of the city as might be the case with a lot of these things that I describe here, etc. Um, now, it is multiscalar also in that today, at least, let's hope that in the future that changes, its demand for resources generates a geography of extraction and processes that spans the globe. It does so in the form of a sequence of confined individual sites, it's, but they are distributed worldwide. One can actually track this and some people are doing that. So it's not like an oil slick that spreads gradually all over, no. These are very shaped geographies uh, in these geographies of extraction and of damage. Now, um, when you look at, when you take these two levels, so a global geography of extraction and then you bring it back into the city, you can make an argument that a lot of this actually instantiates in very specific ways not just in the city, but furniture, jewelry, machinery, all of that has what is now often referred to, I don't think it's a helpful term, as the virtual environmental cost. Um, so I like also that capacity that when you, and, and there are people who are beginning to do this research, it's really fascinating, you look at whatever and you recover behind it a whole other space. Now in that sense, the city then is one moment I would argue in many ways a strategic moment in this global geography of extraction and it is different from that geography itself. So we're already dealing with some sort of multi-scalar dynamic here. Um, now cities mobilize new kinds of socio-ecological systems. 
and we could use mobilize, we can use other, there are other terms that you can use. Um, for instance, the impact of cities on traditional rural economies. You know, more and more rural economies consume what at one moment or another passes through the city, rather than having their own active economy for food production, etc. I think these are all familiar issues, and that is a bit of a tragedy, I would say. So rural populations have become consumers of goods. And all these are all the unnecessary mobilities, if you want. Um, the, hinter, the urban hinterland is now global. But again, not like an oil slick, but highly structured. Um, now, the question of scaling that generates new eco-social systems. And here, um, um, you know, the city instantiates a broad range of environmental damage that may involve very different scales and origins, yet get constituted in urban terms. So CO2 emissions, they're happening all over the place, right? In the case of the city, through scalar dynamics, through certain ecological dynamics, etc., it becomes a totally different condition. In that sense, it's not the same. A truck that puts out bad fumes in a small town, you bring that to the city, you have a multitude of trucks, and you have created potentially a heat island or whatever. So, so in that sense, also thinking about the ways in which the city, through its scaling capacities, actually generates new socio-ecological conditions. <coughs> now, air and water is another nice example. Again, there is a lot of empirical research behind all of this, done by biologists, you know, by all kinds of different forms of knowledge, if you want. Air and waterborne microbes materialize as diseases at the scale of the household, the individual body. They become epidemics in cities. Plus, and I like this, they thrive on, um, what do I have here, on all kinds of, say, machines, the machines, transport machines, which are not themselves susceptible to the virus. So the city in all its complex, for me these are also sort of ecologies for mobilities, even if the machine, the metal, cannot really, uh, uh, you know, is not sensitive if you want. Now the big question, and I'm not going to dwell on this one, is it urbanization per se that is producing a lot of the negatives that we're living with? For me, it doesn't have to. I mean, as long as we're on the earth, we're going to do a bit of damage, no doubt about that. The point is, of course, the types of urbanization that we have constructed, you know, how we do it all. The challenge then is coming back to the bridging of the ecologies, reorienting the material and organizational ecologies of cities. Uh, we need to actually use and build the, on those features of cities that can reorient the, these material and organizational ecologies of cities towards positive interactions, first sentence at the beginning there, between the cities and nature's ecologies. These interactions and the diversity of domains they cover are themselves an emergent, I would argue, socio-ecologic system. So it's not just these two, it's that there, there is an in-between space that remains analytically unmarked, probably politically unmarked, that is becoming its own socio-ecological system. We have done enough damage, you might say, that we have produced a kind of third nature. Um, now, one of the processes that I'm looking at, and I'm doing this with a, with a biologist, actually, um, 
is how do we delegate back to nature what we now do via factories making poisons, etc. And to explain very simply, uh, the clearest example is biodiversity in agriculture, where you use biodiversity rather than poisons, fertilizers, etc., to achieve the same outcome. Right? How do we translate that very elementary and by now familiar concept to the space of the city? Now here I have, I have a little list of these things that are applicable to cities, and some of you may know this, but this is one that I really like a lot. Uh, so it's a self-healing uh, concrete, is sort of one way of putting it, but it's bacteria, that you can use bacteria that can go in the cracks of concrete and really stop bad emissions. We all know that buildings are the main source of, are, are, are the single largest source of emissions. So that is a very intelligent way of using nature. There is, I just was uh, reading some stuff. Another way of doing it, which is to sort of basically plaster algae on, on top of the buildings. I don't know how pretty that would look. I don't know what architects would think about that. But there are ways in which we can do what is a critical aim that involves sort of really scientific knowledge. Um, do I have one more minute? Um, now, ecological economics, extremely important. It has existed for 30 years. It's one of the most obscure disciplines. And I have been in a couple of meetings with them, and one of the questions they always ask is, how come that we don't manage to mobilize anybody out there? Well, when you look at what they're doing, it gets so complicated because at its best, it actually marries scientific knowledge and there's all kinds of stuff you know, that could replace what we now use via factory-made chemicals, etc. And, and then it brings in an alternative kind of economics. Now, by now, perhaps you've read it, you know, a starting point for, for eco, econ, is what I'm going to call it for sure, is that many of the biophysical uh, stocks, flows, and functions that we use are difficult to quantify and price through conventional uh, understandings of markets. Others are invisible. And here, I think one thing that, that comes out in the more detailed uh, material is again a temporality. Eco ecological economics contains a different temporal frame. Sometimes it will take much longer to demonstrate that something is productive, desirable, etc. So this is, but however, I do think it's a very interesting field of knowledge. And now, um, in contrast to neoclassical economics, eco-econ moves away from models of infinite economic growth. I think this is a familiar subject that separate the economy from the environment. Ecological economics really tries to learn a lot from nature to understand how you can do it. Um, yeah, I have a bit more here. And one way of putting it is that the efficiency that organizes uh, you know, the thinking, the model, the prescriptions that might come out of that uh, is an allocative efficiency rather than a market efficiency. Now, allocative is actually a very neutral word when you think about it. You know, so I think we need richer text there. But I, given what I've said, you understand where that is going. Now, second point, very important: it absolutely rejects the notion, which is very common in conventional economics, that with technology, you know, we can whatever, address a lot of these issues. Now, the, the biologist with whom I'm working on this, he actually is, he's yet in another zone, which is using enormously advanced uh, technologies in combination with nature to make nature actually 
deliver even more. That I find very interesting. So I don't necessarily want to put this in an anti-technology discourse. You know, that is not really the idea. Um, critical here is that there are real, unsurmountable environmental limits to growth. You know, we can't just, um, etc. Now, I think I have to really begin to wrap up here. Um, but if we think about what are some of the features of cities that can sort of help, that can work with us, immediately questions of economies of scale, density, they're all familiar, the associated potential for greater efficiency in resource use, et cetera, et cetera. Also, second point, a bit less familiar, less sort of in the, is the whole notion of the dense networks of communication. You do it in a city, it can travel, you know, the sort of the mobilities of information that you see in a city, uh, the demonstration effects, etc. And then finally, I keep coming back to this, I know I'm not elaborating it, there is something about a temporal dimension. Now, in a lot of conventional social science, the temporal dimension gets captured only in terms of duration and process, right, like history. There are other ways, you know, embedded time. And this is something that, that I as a social scientist feel is very important to understand and it's sort of the city contains multiple embedded temporalities. When you reduce the city to sort of, when you don't think the question of temporality, then you have a different space. And my, my, the question for me is, what happens when I recognize multiple embedded temporalities, different <coughs> systems in the city contain different embedded temporalities? How does that then work? Now, final point, I'm ending on a sour note here. Um, not just because Jonathan is probably getting really anxious that I end, but, but there, when you deal with the city inevitably, it is not just science that is going to help you or the goodwill of people. Um, it is also the fact that we're dealing with property systems, with systems that make certain claims legitimate and others not, etc., etc. There are certain situations where using science, you can get a very, very long way. In the city, there are limits, though, again, that doesn't mean that we can't use it. Now, urban systems are built partly through systems of social relations and laws that support the current configuration. You know, it all doesn't just exist in a void. Beyond adoption of practices such as waste, it will take a change in these systems of social relations and in the law itself and much more. Uh, in order to achieve, you know, what we are uh, after here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for asking me to, uh, to join this discussion. Uh, um, it's not really my subject except for one small part of it, which uh, concerns the sociology of consumption. Uh, and it's an obviously important part, although small part of this subject, because we want people to consume less. and. Uh, in order for us to understand that, uh, we need to under, uh, 
perhaps understand first what prompts people to consume more and more. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about tonight. And I'm going to be a professor. I'm going to be rather, uh, 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 rather academic about this. Uh, if you read the sociological literature on consumption, you get there are two different schools for explaining the culturally induced desire uh, for ever more goods, to consume more. And these two explanations are not exactly contradictory, but they lead in different kind of policy directions. But both of them, interestingly, I'm trying to rise to Ricky Burdett's challenge here, involve urban design in, in making their explanation. The first of these explanations dwells on conspicuous consumption, which is a phrase uh, that was coined by Thorsten Veblen in 1909, and has been deployed in more modern times uh, by Guy Debord, a French sociologist. It views consumption as a kind of battle, last battleground of capitalist competition. <coughs> People for, uh, uh, who compete for who has the most and the best. Uh, this is in everyday terms, the realm of how to spend it pages in the Financial Times. Any of you ever read that? It's disgusting. Um, <laughs> which, you know, it mirrors the productive realm of city bonuses in which people gain a lot more than they justly earn. Now, the important point about this is that style and chic are the rules of this game. This is what De Boer calls the society of the spectacle. And the rule of that game of style is invidious comparison. Now, the reason this matters for cities is that the city becomes a stage in which the spectacle of invidious comparison is designed, and particularly the commercial streets of cities, which become a kind of theater of consumption. So this is how one school looks at, at this. Uh, uh, it's not that you want more, that you're more greedy or you're more desirous, but you want more and you want to have more than someone else. So it's always invidious comparison. Now the second sociological explanation for ever greater consumption dwells on dematerialization. The word is less evocative than conspicuous consumption and the idea is a little more complex. In a nutshell, the idea is that a break occurred in modern society between production and consumption. Industrial and technical processes so transformed raw nature that people came to have no idea how things are made and so what they're consuming. The cars people drive, the clothes they wear, the food they eat become all symbolic in value, not things tre treasured for their intrinsic material properties. Now, this argument about dematerialized consumption traces back to Karl Marx's early philosophical manuscripts of 1844, which are treasures uh, that are not as often read as they should be. It's been elaborated in modern sociology by Lucien Goldman in France, by C. Wright Mills in America, and, if I may say, by me in my recent book on craftsmanship. Dematerialization is, of course, a paradox. Ours is an intensely materials-consuming civilization, but the more we consume, the less we are aware of what we consume and how the things we consume are made. 
Now, this view also implicates the city, and again, in a slightly more complicated way than the theater of consumption. The city becomes a place in which we lose material consciousness. That's what's implied in this. We lose material consciousness of how things are used and instead become a culture in which we become more accustomed to think about how they might be used. In other words, the shift is from the actuality of, of use to the potentiality of things. Now, to bring this rather high-flown idea down to earth, think of the four-wheel off-road SUV owned by city dwellers, the infamous Chelsea tractors used mostly to go grocery shopping or to pick up the kids from school <laughs> rather than to travel to the North Pole. The potential matters as a symbol of freedom, as where you might be able to go, as opposed to where you actually travel. And the argument made by my school of sociologists is that cities organize and embody this kind of symbolic consumption which is a consumption of potential, the notion of, uh, of the consumption in a way of freedom, and that the design of modern cities can indeed embody it. So these are two different views of consumption then, one based on showing off, the other based oddly on a notion of enriching your inner fantasy life. Now they're not exactly conflicting as explanations, but they lead, as I say, in different uh, directions once we start to think about the cultural, the sort of cultural change in which people might want to consume less rather than more. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to depart from my text and just try and summarize the role that I think urban design plays specifically in each of these. So if I don't give a very coherent explanation, it's all the fault of of your, it's all your fault, it's all your time clock. Um, conspicuous consumption, of course, means visible to others. And at the dawn of the modern era, cities changed in ways in which uh, wealth was made visible to the masses. We take for granted, for instance, the kind of commercial street in which it's possible to see goods on display for consumption. That's a relatively modern phenomenon. Medieval cities did not con uh, display the goods inside shops, partly a security issue, but it was also the notion that if you really wanted something, uh, you came inside mm -hmm. and you saw what was available. You certainly didn't display a plethora of goods outside. That's a formulation of the commercial shop as a discursive space. And it's reinforced by the fact that very few of the goods for sale in these pre-modern cities had a price tag. That is, you had to negotiate the price of everything. The only kinds of goods that were fixed in their price and fixed by royal edict were very basic staples like grain, bread, and beer. That's enough, but we <laughs> go um, So this is a, dis consumption is a discursive experience, right? not a visual experience. 
What happens in the development of industrial and more modern cities in the 18th and 19th century is that you really do get a visual theater, a scenography of consumption. Um, you probably don't think of it as a, uh, there are many large reasons for that industrial production. It's one, uh, uh, colonialism brings all sorts of new materials which have been industrially produced. I'm not going to focus on those big changes, but just to narrow your attention down to a very uh, particular kind of change which embodies what happens when production changes from being a discursive activity to essentially a, a visual spectacle. In the 1870s, the Aubomarché um, uh, department store opened in Paris on a very new set of principles. It had huge plate glass windows, steel frame plate glass windows, which were secure, behind which, for the first time, store owners showed an enormous plethora of goods. Um, you could see that there was a lot in the shop. But moreover, those goods now had fixed price tags, mass retailing required that the prices of these objects be fixed. And the problem the owners of the Beaumarchais had to face was how could they increase the desire for consumption beyond purely utilitarian ways by <coughs> displaying all these goods for sale. The logic would be you cheap, choose the cheapest series, huge display, choose the cheapest. This begat a, uh, a notion that the goods in themselves uh, were, and it's the beginning of modern advertising, were to be associated not with their material properties, uh, but rather with their users. So in a famous ad that Beaumarchais commissioned in 1877, they show an aristocratic duchess, a real one, plunging one of the spoons for sale in Beaumarchais, which is meant for st stirring soup, into a pot of caviar. And you understand what the logic of this is about. You're gradually dematerializing the object in this theater display. Its associational properties with the, with the user become more important than the functional properties of the object itself. And that's one way in which uh, this domain is actually designed in cities. What we take for granted in Oxford Street, right? Those, uh, I can't remember actually if it's on Oxford Street. You know the Abercrombie and Fitch ads which show you those obscenely thin, sexy adolescents and what they're really <laughs> advertising is underwear, you know? The idea of that <coughs> is that the, the display is meant to display any question about whether this is a good pair of underpants or not. Right? That's the logic of this visual theater. That's what dematerialization is about. Another, a second instance of it has to do, and it's designed, and we make the shopping mall as the same sort of principle. It's all to deflect against the utility of the object. The second and more, uh, here I'll read you a little about this, uh, uh, 
pressing for us as urban designers issue about this has to do with the notion of the consumption of potential, which is really where uh, the school that I belong to has really focused. How is it that people want some, something not for what it is in itself, but for what it might do? Um, I give you an example of how that works in urban design. This is the Chelsea Tractor principle. Um, in 1946, in the back offices of the Tribal Authority in New York, a huge debate raged. The master planner, Robert Moses, was contemplating the post-war development of New York into Long Island. He imagined something like a kind of Hausmannian network of roads meant to speed people out of the city to the suburbs. But his back office engineers objected. You can read all about this in, I think it's in Bob Carroll's quote, or if not, it's in my book, the Paul uh, Public. No. Sorry. Uh, but I think it's in his book. Okay, now these back office engineers argued it'd be much more efficient and much more practical to build up mass transit than cars. Moses argued back that people want freedom of movement. They want, in his words, quote, to be able to go anywhere when they want to at any time. The transport engineers reposted that almost all of these commuters had a fixed journey route from house to office. And Moses said in a, seeming, in, in, a, in a way to settle the argument and seemingly irrationally, the suburbs are places of opportunity. Now, the dissociation of utility from opportunity contains, in fact, a whole logic of consumption. An opportunity represents something that might happen. And in Robert Moses' mind in 1946, the suburb represented a way to live which is open-ended, unfixed, fluid. No matter the facts, it's the potential possibilities which matter. The logic of capitalist development, C. Wright Mills argues, stresses the possible rather than the practical. It's a very important point. It stresses development in the sense of the open-ended, the possible rather than the practical. Um, supposedly hard-headed investors are excited more by what they might, uh, uh, what might be, than rather than is what is proved to work. And the history of much modern urban design is marked by exactly such a kind of impractical development investment, and as in the case for Long Island, a kind of self-destructive development, development. We want to understand it as a peculiar consumer ethos. It marks in time, and here we come to your temporal dimension, the divide between what you already possess or what you already know how to use and what you want. That's its temporal dimension. The psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan once observed that the ideal is the lover you have not yet met. Which is to say that desire is about becoming rather than being. This fancy truism applies uh, to the modern experience of technology as much as to urban design and purchasing computers, for instance. Modern consumers buy machines they do not know how to use, loaded with bells and whistles, machines they will, potentialities they will never use and desirable exactly for that reason. 
it might allow something different to happen. So the construction of desire in this Lacanian vein is about not actually enjoyment. It's about fantasy. And lest you think this is a very um, abstruse psychological phenomenon, this is the way in which we create a culture which junks things. We know this about cars, we know it about computers. People treat them as junk long before they come to the end of their practical lives. They're still viable objects, but they're no longer desirable objects. And the whole Lacanian idea is that once the moment we possess something, the moment we actually have something which we can use, the fantasy associated with it dies. <coughs> I have a friend who's a Lacanian city planner who arguments, argues this is why people move out of perfectly good neighborhoods. Once you're there, it no longer is a space in which your desire is a little. And so you produce junk. So this is a little, I've just scratched the surface of this, and, and um, I'm very tempted to go on with this, but um, the examples of this. This is the way in which the seemingly the most material practice, which is the practice of actually making a city, can get engaged in the logic of dematerialization, of providing for people's fantasies, of creating streets, using streets for transport, uh, in <coughs> creating new neighborhoods, all in which the desire for consumption is aroused and the desire for use is suppressed. And that, Ricky, I would say, is one way in which the topic which you gave us is a very important one for uh, sociologists of consumption. The city mobilizes this spectacle this theater of consumption in which uh, people's desire is in this temporal frame for what they've yet to experience. It creates a whole logic of joke, like, uh, and so on, and fantasy. Uh, I just want to end these comments by saying, I began at the beginning by saying that uh, there are rather different kind of politics follow from the Veblen, Veblen idea of conspicuous consumption and this, this realm of critique which focuses on dematerialization. Uh, Veblen would have been very happy in the Cultural Revolution in China in the 60s. Uh, he believed that the only way to deal with invidious consumption was, as he said, the mask of neutrality. Now, he may be right or wrong in that, but the idea is that the only way you can attack the desire to show off to other people is deny them difference. Now, I don't happen, I'm, I'm exaggerating this a bit, but, um, and he made it as an argument about clothes, uh, he made it as an argument about houses, he argued that uh, there should be no differentials in house prices. You know, that the, what, in order to deal with the desire for more, you had to remove the spectacular element in society. 
That's not my view. And I'd say the view of people who subscribe to this theory of dematerialization is that the politics lie in connecting, forcing on people's consciousness an awareness of the relationship between production and consumption. I'll give you an example of this. You're all familiar with the fact that, these, that much of the food that you buy today lists how it's, what its ingredients are and its calories. But when you buy a, a set of genes, the label does not show you the wages paid to the person in China or Vietnam who made those genes. Um, there is a kind of prohibition on putting together the actual facts of production and consumption in uh, modern culture. It would, um, some labor units have been, in the US have been, have been arguing for this. The retailers absolutely against it. They say if people knew that somebody was paid five cents to make a $20 pair of jeans, they wouldn't buy it. Well, isn't that the point? <laughs> so the logic for us has been in this school to make people, oddly enough, more materialistically minded than us by connecting the domain of making and of consuming. And that has all sorts of implications for cities as well. And maybe we can talk about those in the discussion session. Thank you very much. I am. Uh, you know, we're married, I should tell you this, so I mean, if, if there are occasional family jokes. Uh, Richard and uh, Saskia, thank you very much indeed, and thank you for keeping to the time, which is wonderful. So we've now got 40 minutes for some lively discussion. Um, just while you work out what you want to ask or the contribution you might like to make, can I... Can I sort of shift the focus a tiny bit by asking both of you, if instead of this illustrious audience of academics and students in front of you, you had the mayors of the C40 initiative. This is the initiative convened by Bill Clinton to bring together the mayors of 40 of the big cities in the world today, essentially to get on top of the challenge of climate change. That's why they're convened, that's why they're trying to come up with smart design systems, technologies, procurement, all the rest of it, okay? 40 mayors. From the cumulative wisdom of your lives as academics, what is the one bit of advice, the one bit, please, one bit of advice you would offer those 40 mayors? Do I go first? Of course. <laughs> that is not an easy question, you know no, that. No, no. Because uh, the problem is that I have to do it in one minute. So I would say that a critical first step, that's how I'm protecting myself here, is um, to delegate back to nature, to people at all levels. Create distributed systems. And both understood as a variable. One of the stuff that I was talking about, delegate back to nature, 
The other version is that people are enabled to do weatherize their homes, to do urban farming, etc. That is the thing that you can really do in a city. There are a few other things. Okay. Just one, I hate to use the word concrete, one concrete example of delegating back to nature, apart from the healing concrete. Oh, there are many nice ones. Using algae to clean up toxic ground and toxic water, not using fertilizer, replacing it with biodiversity, whatever you're doing, bring in, in there would be a massive global trait in various kinds of insects, that's true, you know, that would create mobilities and consumption of oil, that is a bit of a problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to pull an academic number on you, which we academics do, which is you've got the question the wrong way around. <laughs> That's how, why we're paid, you know, Jonathan, to do this. Uh, but the serious answer to this is that I'm, uh, I'm absolutely convinced that changes of the sort I'm talking about have to start with people's behavior rather than with political dictates. And it's why I'm interested in uh, uh, culture, which precedes politics, uh, cultural change which gets people to change what they want and the way they behave. Uh, I think that politicians are not the source of, of this, this process at all. It's why, for instance, on this labeling issue, we haven't asked, and I'd never ask any mayors to do it because they'd always compromise. I, uh, uh, if consumers begin demanding to see how much somebody were paid, uh, you'll get change. And that takes really, it takes a different kind of, of organizing. I, I, I guess my serious answer to you about this is that we've made climate change, is it, it's as though the power has to act first before people's behavior is going to change. And I think that's just the wrong way around. Okay. No, but can I add something? Uh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring some, some voices in, if I may. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. Of course, of course. Um, so, let's get to groups of this. That's a very interesting couple of propositions you've heard there, okay? So, delegating to nature and allowing culture to precede political leadership. Don't forget, you are in the city where a very decisive mayor introduced congestion charging in the teeth of fierce cultural, behavioral opposition from every single section of London society, apart from bicyclists and pedestrians, because we were quite keen on it, okay. So if the mayor has... That's not such a small group of people. No, quite That's small, annoying. actually, yeah. in London. Everybody walks. <laughs> so, okay, now we've got two microphones. Um, I'm going to try and sort of take clusters of questions if we can, rather than single questions. Would you mind going to the one right at the back, second row back, and I've got a gentleman over there who I'll take after that. I also have a question for Saskia. <laughs> I have a question for him. You take your turn. <laughs> right. Um, thanks to both of you for really good, for, for sharing your thoughts. My question is for uh, Saskia. Uh, just to help us understand, could you give us an example of how you could take advantage of the city's complexity to bridge with nature's ecologies? Should I just answer? Um, I think so, unless you happen by some serendipitous chance to have exactly the same area of inquiry. No. Okay, go for it. <laughs> well, I mean, look, there, it's not an easy question to answer very quickly. 
But let me just start with, with a couple of, of initial sort of points of entry, if you want. One of them is that what the way we have organized our systems, our economies, our cities, whatever, is that we keep the, the flux is interrupted, and at some point it becomes negative. So we consume and then we produce garbage. So I think we can use the many different components that make up a city. Where is the person that I did? Look back there. I see. Yeah. Um, we can use the many different components of a city to push, push further and further so that that division, that it becomes a negative flux flow, is altered. Now, cities already do that, all kinds of recycling, etc. How can we push it further? That's one thing. The other thing is what, when I was describing, you know, what, what at the individual level can be um, the disease of a body or a virus has invaded a household, at the level of the city becomes an epidemic that can thrive even on metal that is not sensitive to the virus, right? How do we use that as a metaphor for all kinds of things? And now, so much of what we have understood about the city comes with negative valence vis-a-vis -vis the question of the environment. How do we work at, and I think there's work of, of discovery, of of you know, working with different uh, uh, types of experts in order to understand how we can do that. Um, am I answering your question, or is it? Yes, I know. But <laughs> I would. I would. Start. Yes. Okay, <laughs> Thanks. I'd like to also thank both of the speakers. Um, Ms. Hassan, you say, and I quote: "Beyond adoption of practices such as waste recycling, it will take a change in the system." Unquote. Um, Mr. Senna has suggested that cultural change would be one way. Um, when you say that, do you mean political change, cultural change? And what is the system that requires dismantling? Is it, for example, economic systems which demand endless growth, or political systems? Or what? Well, it's a lot of different systems. There are issues of the law. You know, we're beginning to see now, you see a whole bunch of cities where the leadership actually uh, is trying to promote certain practices, like that people weatherize their homes. I mentioned this already in passing. And that they are enabling local firms, enterprises, to help people. So they give money, especially to low-income areas. They give a bit of funding and support. Austin is a good example here. But there are many, many cases. So what you begin to have is a more distributed way of doing it. In the long run, this begins to erode certain forms of monopoly in terms of where do you go get your goods, where do you go buy your services, one thing. The other thing is what is legitimate and what is not. The most dramatic example here is WTO law. Under WTA law, it became legitimate for certain firms to go straight to local, local, local courts and to claim that certain in local environmental measures uh, were affecting their free trade rights. You know, I mean, there is, again, a whole literature on that. We need to changes in the law. We need changes in how we use existing resources, how we facilitate. Um, so it's, it's a lot of work. Now, I find that, for instance, the, the, the whole notion of, of uh, Global warming, you know, opens up the northern passages to new types of business. You know, the business component that we are extracting from climate change and its effects 
That worries me, actually. You know, some, if, if you can have local farming and critical regionalism, as we might say, you know, you source locally in Greenland, that's good. But if it is luxury hotels that want to set up, you know, the new Mediterranean on the Baltic, so to say, you know, that worries me. So there are too many profit logics that could uh, bring negative outcomes, uh, even under the best circumstances where we work with the environment. It's a, yes, am I getting there or not? In other words, law, property issues, uh, 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 profit logics, besides property issues, uh, the way local governments get their revenues, uh, the way those revenues get allocated, what is prioritized. The whole question in the United States of the money that goes to highways, it's going now to highways too, you know, under the... So those are massive systems that we're dealing with. I, seem, I tend to think that the city makes a lot of this stuff very concrete. It creates a certain immediacy. You can begin to act on it. Now, I agree completely with what Bridget says, that of course people are part of it, changing our cultures of understanding and all of that. But I also think that the leadership can do something by enabling. And at the end of it all, what I see is if we really are serious about greening, and we can think in very practical terms. We don't need to go on ideology and culture and all of that. No practical greening. We wind up with far more distributed systems. And by distributed systems, I mean something good. Okay, so we, we decenter, we decenter, we decenter. And at the level of the city and neighborhoods, that's something that one can understand. So those are, yeah, I have to shut up, I know. It's a very long list. It's a very long list, yeah. Richard, systemic change in answer to the question. Which, how would you see that challenge? What systems changes need to come about if they're not politically driven top down, but as Saskia was saying, if they're starting bottom up? Where, where does that happen? Well, I think your question really is about the relation between civil society and government. And I have, you know, I'm a cultural sociologist, so, you know, I've got a party pre on that. I believe that anything we can do to strengthen civil society is going to be, uh, in the end, more viable uh, than uh, strengthening government imposition and, and diktat. Uh, what I like about many of the green movements is uh, that they have a very strong grounding in, in civil society. Yes. They are, their destination is other people rather than mayors. Uh, and I think the, the structural issue is how we actually give more real power to civil society. When I listen to uh, David Cameron talk about this, for instance, what I hear him talking about is giving more real power to the people who dominate civil society. That is your local grandee. Uh, that's, not, that's not a civil society uh, uh, procedure. He doesn't actually believe on citizens' initiatives and so on. He's just reduced the scale of power. But what I like about these green movements, and I say I'm no, you know, I'm no expert in, in this, but what I like about them is that they smell to me like real civil society forces. Uh, it doesn't matter whether the politicians don't get it or not. People are committed. They'll change their behavior. Well, it's not one or the other. No, that's right. It's not one or the other. 
but it's we there is so much knowledge that we need to bring to bear on you know there is real work to be done and civil society by itself you know is is too vague i think okay I like it. I like right. I've got one here. And, um, I've got one question, and then I'm going to take the gentleman just behind, and then I'm going to look for one more over this side. Please. Hi. Uh, Professor Sennett, thank you very much. I actually wanted to ask you if you have any, um, if you've been doing any thinking about the spectacle of consumption of green products, so things like hybrid cars, <laughs> solar panels, et cetera, and um, how that fits into what you were talking about. Well, this is a really good question, and uh, it's a, um, I, I, I give you a, a concrete instance of it. I went to uh, a meeting a few months ago of automobile manufacturers in the U.S. who were thinking about how, as it were, to cash in on, on uh, uh, green cars. Uh, and the logic of cashing in on green products is essentially to uh, uh, this logic of associating them with a lifestyle. And uh, is, a, is an amazing meeting to me. This is the ruin General Motors. And people are talking about how to associate the Volt, for instance, with being a young uh, metropolitan professional. So to sell it. Uh, the actual fact that it does good is transformed by the, by the advertising into the fact that you're good. And that's the dematerialist move. What was interesting there was that the manufacturers of the car which you, the, the Indian car that you know as the G Wiz, not the electric car, were there and I watched their body language. These, it's a, it's a man and his father and two cousins. And I watched their body language as they heard this going on. And one of them said at a certain point, well, you know, that's all very well. But what we're trying to do is get people uh, a cheap, efficient transport. And we've never had to indulge in associational advertising to do that. And, you know, they're now selling more and more of these. So in consumer culture, that's the dialectic. If we make green products, if we submit them to the logic of capitalist dematerialization, the point of them will disappear. They'll become lifestyle products. But it's not inevitable. And you can, you can make a perf perfectly viable business on a much more utilitarian front, which is what these Indian uh, electron, uh, 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 they're not hybrids, they're electric car manufacturers are doing. So I think that's, maybe I could put this another way. Again, I'm talking to you as somebody who studies consumption, you know, and craftsmanship rather than, than green life. But I think the danger of this is that the logic of making it popular and acceptable is a logic of taking away its point. And so part of the politics of being green is to insist this is not a lifestyle. It's a way to conduct uh, a life. And there are places and countries in which that's you know, perfectly, perfectly possible.
Okay. Have we got any others on this notion of green consumption of this kind and whether there are solutions that reside there? Would I, I, do, I, is, is yours sort of vaguely? Yeah, it's kind of related. Um. Well, I'll, if I'll ask you to pass the microphone along and I'll take these two together. Thank you. No, no, you go first. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it was um, in relation to dematerialization. And as you mentioned, you know, when we have this fantasy invested in material objects, the ownership of the object causes the fantasy to die. And there's a feeling of disappointment that comes with that. I just wonder if you have any insight into why we don't learn from that <laughs> and we keep <laughs> investing ourselves back in these objects yes, when so. all that's awaiting us is, is disappointment. Okay, yeah. thank you. You can pass that along and just take these two together. Thank you. Hello, this is also about materiality and um, the gimmicks of transparency, like um, quite specifically like using glass for um, office buildings and how that's meant to be showing of what's inside and like shopping and you know, right. displaying spectacles. Um, how, how much do you think that contributes to laziness, you know, lack of discourse as you said and the idea of bargaining or finding and how can boundaries actually um, enrich our life? Well, can I please? Uh, let me take this second question first because it's a really important one. Uh, as you may know, I'm often accused of being the last living socialist. I, I, I think Tony Benn is older than, than me. But the argument I'm not making to you is uh, that I'm making to you is not flatly an anti-capitalist <coughs> argument. It's about the grounds on on which people experience and transact the act of consumption. Uh, and the issue, I wouldn't use the word lazy, I would use the contrast between, that's why, what this discursive visual thing is about, between active and passive engagement in the process of consumption. It's much easier to look at something and say I'll have that than to ask what it's about. When you do internet shopping, for instance, we have a lot of data about this. The appeal of internet shopping, there's a, there's a lot of research done on this, is that it's no hassle, and when researchers ask, well, what does that mean, it's no hassle? It means that you can make a decision right away. There's no need for a social interaction. Whereas the bazaar, which stands at the other end of it, mixes together the notion of social interaction and satisfaction of material need. They're absolutely, any of you who have gone to a non-Western bizarre Middle East, South America, know exactly what I'm talking about. The experience of shopping is also an experience of exchange with other people. And you have to get the skills of social exchange in order to cut a good deal for yourself. That's what gets eliminated that kind of social skill in this dematerialized consumption and what constitutes the appeal of shopping online. It makes less social demands of people. And it's again why, as an, I'm speaking to as an urbanist, the reason that I have defended you know, <coughs> street markets is the same reason that urbanists <coughs> in other countries uh, def defend bazaars. They're not backward looking. They're in fact ways of sociability that are erected by uh, a certain kind of 
of, of marketing. They are capitalist enterprises. But they're capitalist enterprises of completely different, and I would say non-civil society sort, than simply click, making your mouse click online. And Richard, what about the first question? Why don't we learn? Since I don't know the answer, I'm going to take refuge in theory. The Lacanian theory <laughs> of this is that when fantasy fails, uh, you think the fault was you had the wrong fantasy. It's <laughs> very good. It's very good. Oh. No, mine is not going to be so brief and pithy. Well, listen, we have a whole machinery, right, produces desire, etc. I don't need to develop that. Secondly, we have a logic embedded in how the economy works and what makes firms survive and what keeps jobs in place that depends to an inordinate extent on consuming, 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 by firms and by individuals. So firms are fancying up their, they, they shop yeah. for new furniture. I mean, it's across. So that is why this issue, coming back to some of the two earlier, the earlier question there, you know, how do we embed other logics? And here, this stuff that I was just touching on, on ecological economics, is very important because it allows for a much larger temporal frame, more duration, for something to be, let's use the conventional language, profitable, successful, viable, you know, if you're talking about an enterprise. So the, the challenge that we face is really deep, very complex, and it will take whole new ways in which we have to work together. Um, now may there I was ask? One, yeah, oh. Just one little more thing that I wanted to say. Because I, I have said a question. It in passing, which is that I think that there is this new emergent space where we need architects, engineers, we also need digital thingies, we need, we need biologists, we need all kinds of things. This is an emergent space, as I was saying, that I see it, you know, between all these ecologies of nature and all these ecologies that are really become, come together, if you want, in cities. That's not the only place where they are. And that is a space that we need to develop. We need to, that's a space where new, very innovative enterprises can exist, you know, that's already happening. That's where citizens can connect, civil society can articulate among each other in different ways. This is a very important zone. And we don't have a proper name even for it. You know, it's, it remains unmarked in our imaginaries, political, etc. It's emergent. And I think that that is part of, if you want, the future. Okay, Richard gets to the next question. Can I see some more hands? So I've got uh, one in the middle there. And okay, that one. we don't want to keep you too, too long. Richard. Uh, well, actually, that raised a question as an urbanist I want to ask you. I understand the logic, and I think it's almost a sort of doctrine of our center for cities, that we need to have more dense urban designs, that the best green practice we can get into is by redensifying the city. Well, when I look at your slides, I then see all those things like microclimates, you know, uh, spread of disease, et cetera, all of that stuff, which are inevitable consequences of densification. So what I want to ask you is if you've thought in your own mind, since these are as all values are in conflict and irreconcilable, 
What we, and maybe this comes back to your practical question in another way, since we're pursuing as a project the strategy of reinventing density for cities as an ecological strategy, how do we deal with the fact that density carries these deficits? Mm. Well, I mean, two excellent points. Uh, one is density is a variable, and I think in the research at, at the urban, at the cities program that has been established, it's not simply that more density is better. Right. Dens density, like in my experience, everything else is a curve. Up to a certain point, you have more of it, it's great. Even for the best condition, after a certain point, the valence can turn negative. So with, we know that if you have extremely, extremely tall buildings, you know, at some point, the costs and also the disasters that would happen if the electricity system, you know, the consumption of energy, etc. So density is a curve. Secondly, at a deeper level, and this comes back to that first question, you know, the multi, the complexity, etc. I look at all these negatives, including what I was saying about the virus and the spread of disease. These are, can we look at them structurally? They're systems of communication. Their flows are working rather nicely in them very often, too nicely, right? Because the outcomes are negative, like if you have an epidemic. So my question then becomes, here is a systemic capacity to keep a flow going. Now, when we enter in the domain of our consumption and our garbage, we brutally interrupt those flows. Can we learn from these structures, these capacity? Because can, can, we, can we strip it from its negative valence in the case of an epidemic? And can we understand something about a structure that facilitates flow? Because remember what I'm saying, flow is, recycling is a way of expanding the flow, right? Rather than making it, first you consume it and then it becomes waste. How do we eliminate that other half, right? So can we look at it structurally and say, here we're dealing with a systemic capacity that now is used for X. Can we shift that around? Can we use it for other things? When you begin to look at the city like that, you know, complex systems, in other words. Yeah. Many interesting, everything is potentially a platform um, for other kinds of flows. And again, this whole notion of what are all the capabilities for keeping a flow going that a city has. You know, as, yeah. Right, I've got two more here. So nice, quick answers, if we could, so I can get as many voices in as possible. You've got, the, you. ro you've got the wrong, wrong speakers. Nobody. I have the wrong people You're working with wrong me people. now. You're working with me. It's OK. We're trying. Right. We're trying. Um, yeah, I'd also like to thank the two speakers. Um, my question is, um, well, we've heard um, two answers to this problem of the city and the environment today. And I wonder if uh, these uh, two proposals are even compatible, because it seems to me that what Professor Senate is proposing is a, um, a strategy of containment of desire, whereas uh, Professor Sasson is pro uh, proposing a strategy which is based on the proliferation of desire, uh, because basically what you're proposing, uh, and I'm yeah. referring to Professor Sasson here, is, is the creation of a zone where different sort of, uh, let's say, interests can interact and create uh, something which is good for the environment, such as bacteria and concrete. Right. No, you. That's right. So, we are they compatible? Disagree. The two strategies. Can I, can I, I disagree that we disagree. Yes, by I the way, sure I, I is happy with the way he's been characterized. Are you happy with the way that you've been characterized? In 
that? Well, question? I wouldn't call it a proliferation of cultures of desire. I would exactly. call it a proliferation of, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, but, but proliferation, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> We're so helpful. Creating tension up here. Richard did warn me there might be a bit of that. That's okay. <laughs> and there was another... Someone else got the microphone there, um, please. Yes, thanks for a really interesting discussion. Um, actually, I was going to ask you about whether you thought high-density living was, um, could possibly be the future, but you've kind of discussed that a bit. I don't know if there's anything more you would like to say about that. No, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> high-density is what did you ask? Do you, have you got an Is that it? Uh, no, that's fine if you... Okay. Unless there's anything to add on the high-density story? Well... You didn't get a chance for that one? Uh, I, all I can say is that this is, we're trying to explore not the, the number of, density as a number, but density in various kinds of architectural and urban forms. And this is a research project that we're committed to over the next, next five years. And just how many people live in this structure, but how they're distributed, who they are, and so on. So your question is an excellent one, but it's sort of at, it's something we don't know enough about. But we do know that density is made, and we can make it in many different sure. ways. And so there is this notion of it's a variable. It can work with the environment, or it or can work against. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean. Okay, here we go. You have the final say. So this has to be a killer question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Won't be. Very good. Maybe you I'm just it. interested in um, probably there are silent perspectives of, of cities or different perspectives of worlds that have been silenced and uh, might not have place in this discussion. So I'm thinking about different civilizations that deal in a different way with nature, with craft work, and I wonder if they have a place in this debate because maybe it's time to pay attention to, I don't know, indigenous communities. What do you think about that? Sure. I, in this, in this uh, uh, sort of larger effort to find out about what are the knowledges in the past and in the present that have been used, you know, in order to make whatever it is, a city, an agricultural field, the past has enormously important components. And one of my colleagues at the University of Chicago, uh, it took him like 20 years, but totally reconstructed Mayan Maya, the old Mayas, ways of doing agriculture. And they literally rebuilt it with a, you know, extraordinarily productive, extraordinarily not in need of buying any chemicals and fertilizers, etc. you know, even in a pest-rich <laughs> environment. <laughs> So we have a lot of that. We know about the way in which in older architectures, air is allowed to circulate. So you need far less of, a, of, a, of air conditioning, etc. I mean, many, many. There is a knowledge that is embedded that aims at the same outcome, but it's a knowledge distributed across multiple systems and embedded in very different types of Bases, if you want platforms, than we. We just trot in the air conditioning. We trot in the, you know, all the excess lights and all of that. So I think that looking at traditional architectures 
traditional cities often reveals, because that was a, those were knowledges that evolved over long periods of time. I think this by now we know this. You know, they 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 understood something that we have just again coming back to that flow. You know, we kill it. We just buy the air conditioning and we kill the rest of the. Yeah. So that is a beautiful note to end on. And thank you. Yes. Uh. Oh, well. Oh, no, 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 no. I was just thinking his question, <laughs> not my statement. That was a beautiful note. <laughs> I was thinking the beautiful note was his question, not my answer. Uh, well, of course, what you say is, is true. And um, uh, to me, uh, since one of the things that's happened to modern capitalism is that it's downplayed the value of craftsmanship. The next step, I think, in uh, its evolution is to recover the productive value over consumption value. And, um, you know, in our time, you know, neoliberalism was treated as a kind of destination. That's how things end up. And I think we now know that's just not, not the case. Uh, and um, it's not just a matter of learning from the past, but it's learning, say, new ways to use technology, which would step outside the framework of, for instance, of simplicity of use, which is very pacified, consume, you know, that sort of thing. So I don't think this is by any means the end of the story. But what I do say to you is that I think we have so deeply ingrained in us uh, uh, an absence of material consciousness that that's been so erased from us that it's hard to recover the kind of practices which actually build an environment. Richard, thank you, and thank you very much um, for all your questions. <laughs> <laughs> It's very much the purpose behind these Urban Age lectures to get people to think in divergent ways, to be challenged, to perhaps rethink some of the assumptions you might have before that. And I'm very grateful to our two lecturers this evening. I'm going to just take away two problems that I'm wrestling with at the moment, which I haven't resolved personally and which I'll have to go away and work at. The first is whether we can really move in cities away from the theatre of individualized consumption, as Richard characterized it, towards the theater of shared living. And how we are going to do that with essentially a bottom-up driven process as well as a top-down political process, that's a huge challenge, absolutely huge challenge. Containment of desire is not in the books as far as politicians are concerned no. today. And I loved it when Richard started his lecture by saying, we want people to consume less. I can assure you, there is no mainstream politician <laughs> in the world who wants people to consume less. So just understand the nature of the cultural challenge that we're talking about here. That's something for me to take away. And maybe I'm wrestling with that one because of my second quandary, which is potentially conflicting interpretations of dematerialization, as used by both Saskia and Richard this evening. Dematerialization in Richard's talk was really all about this problem where people have disassociated the material quality of something 
from its function. In our kind of sustainability world, dematerialization means something just a little bit different. It means creating economic value with the lowest possible throughput of material right. sources, whether it's energy, commodities, whatever it might be. These two interpretations of dematerialization are going to have to be brought yeah. together in a really powerful way, so I'm grateful for that insight. It took me back to practically the first uh, lecture I ever heard um, on this subject, which was Fritz Schumacher uh, back in 1972, astonishing man, possibly even came up with some of this idea about materialization and dematerialization at the same time, no doubt, as Richard was doing it. Um, Fritz Schumacher was very, very clear. He just said, I hate it when people say the problem is too much materialism in our lives. Actually, the problem is not enough materialism in our lives because people do not understand the value, the real value, associated with the use of materials in our consumptive economy. And I must say, that's a very powerful reminder. Fritz Schumacher was great at these things, by the way. When he was accused of being a crank, he said, I don't care how many people call me a crank, because cranks are basically small, beautifully designed, effective, and they make revolutions. And we've had two wonderful cranks with us here this evening, for which many thanks.